Hey there, welcome to the Inside Redemption Podcast. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm the executive pastor of Redemption Church, Arizona, and the lead pastor of Redemption Church Gateway. And Inside Redemption is a podcast where we try to lift the hood and take you behind the scenes and help you understand more of what's going on uh, across and inside a Redemption Church here in Arizona. So today we have a, a, a podcast that I've been looking forward to, an episode that I think is going to be really helpful with Joshua Butler, who's one of the lead pastors at Redemption Church Tempe, and Seth Trout, who's the executive pastor at Redemption Church Gateway. These guys are really the core of our theology team. We have a theology team that helps really initiate um, understanding across difficult theological issues. And so today what we're going to do is talk with them a little bit about their theological development, um, some of the different things and projects they've worked on and generally what that theology team is like. And then we're going to have an extended conversation where we work through one of the articles from our membership packet on the body sex and gender identity. And the reason we're doing that is we have an event coming up uh, soon after this, September 21st. Um, and that's going to be a night at Redemption Church Tempe. And then it will also be live streamed on our Redemption Church AZ YouTube channel. And it's going to be a night really focused on uh, dealing with these issues of the body, sex, and gender identity. It's such a huge issue in our world, and we want to provide some clarity and some equipping. And so uh, this conversation here is really to provide some clarity about where Redemption Church stands as, as we talk through that document. And then that event, which will also be the audio from that, will also be posted here on Inside Redemption uh, on the podcast channel. Um, when we have that, that'll be more of an equipping conversation. So I'm uh, really excited to have this conversation with these guys. I think it'll be really helpful. And uh Josh, Seth, it's great to have you guys. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, well, let's start with you, Josh. Um, you guys, I mean, it's interesting because I think both of you guys, you know, in the in the church, when people kind of get to theological issues, you guys tend to be the people that go, oh, what do you think? How did you get, What do you, how do you process this? So I think it'd be fun to just kind of hear a little bit of your kind of almost theological testimony of, you know, how has the Lord formed you? Um what have been some of the significant influences, uh, you know, what's shaped you in terms of kind of thinking theologically about the world? Definitely. Well, uh, one big thing for me growing up was actually, I think, just the Bible as story. Uh, so my family, we were not Christians, but uh, a friend of mine, mom's, actually gave us a children's Bible. And not like the little, you know, storybook kind, but actually like the story is pretty in-depth, you know? Okay. And uh, I was like five, six years old, just learned to read, and I just fell in love with it. And I just started reading it, like, every day. Not like a legalistic, I got to where God's going to be mad, but more like just fell in love with the beauty of the story. And so from a young age, even though we weren't in church, weren't uh, Christian per se, like, I just fell in love with the Bible and read it regularly. And I think it created a sense of, like, the Bible as a storyline and mm. God's redemptive story for the world, you know? Um, particularly the Old Testament, I was really fascinated even more by. I hardly remember the New Testament, but the Old Testament was really big. Later in uh, college, I had this encounter with Jesus, kind of come to faith, and um, just this huge moment. Uh, and I'm also immersed in my study, so I didn't really have time to read theology uh, but I was in an environment that was pretty hostile to the Christian faith, and okay. I found myself digging in, especially to the prophets, like really going, now an adult Bible, you know, not my <laughs> kid's Bible anymore, uh, but just diving in and really going, man, God, what do you have to say about all these things? So as a new Christian, I just kind of immersed back in Scripture. Wow. Um, I mean, that's, even that's interesting. Yeah. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't talk to new Christians in our, you know, start here classes and go, start with Isaiah. <laughs> totally, man. I remember like Jeremiah, he was my guy, dude. I was, you know, just immersed in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And Do those children's Bibles do justice to Jeremiah and Isaiah? <laughs> well, this is no longer the children's Bible. This was like the, uh, you know, the, this was the adult version. How did you, I mean, just, just interrupting you there. How did you think to do that? Did someone advise you on that or 
did you kind of like do one of those random, you know, Man, flip through your Bible and put your I, finger I on know. a page and go, oh, this is actually kind of relevant to what I'm going through. Yeah, well, I don't know. So I was in, you know, University of Oregon, international studies major. So a lot of my, you know, professors and the folks, uh, my friends who were very hostile to the Christian faith, a lot of it had to do with issues of justice. And I kind of had enough awareness to go, the prophets seem to care a lot about justice. So I huh. want to dive in there, you know, okay. so I'd kind of be reading. I remember I'd be out in the, the EMU, kind of the place where, you know, uh, all the students are at studying. And on one hand, I'd have all these books that were very hostile to anything, you know, Christian and a lot of wild ideologies running around in those pages. And then right next to it, I'd have my Bible open in like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, huh. the small prophet, you know, and I'd just be reading through and, uh, yeah, reading those side by side, and that was really formative for me. Uh, I think the Bible is God's story, uh, the, God's heart for justice, his concern for the overlooked, those kind of themes, um, really big. And then post-college, I, uh, man, it's a long story, but ended up, you know, stepping into ministry unexpectedly and and uh, went to seminary, and I ended up studying with a, a professor there. Uh, Dr. Paul Metzger, who was, uh, he introduced me to basically Karl Barth was my gateway drug into reformed theology. <laughs> so, kind of, a, a strange gateway drug, maybe for some who, who know, but Seth, uh, you're shaking your head. <laughs> I'm just against gateway drugs in general. Karl <laughs> Barth, Colin Gutton, some others. And that just led into this, uh, you know, as I mentioned, a gateway into then what later became like Kuiper and Bavink and Reformed theology, what would often be called kind of the continental Reformed theology, like European uh, on the continent, so to speak. And, um, and it was interesting because, so I'm newer in ministry, and I was just kind of oblivious. I think most folks today that grew up in that generation with me, when you talk about like the Reformed world or whatever, you know, like folks like Piper, Driscoll were really big names in, you know, the 2000s when I was kind of in ministry. And I honestly, yeah, kind of a reformed theology really centered on salvation yes. and Calvinism and the doctrines of grace. Totally. And to but, be honest, but where you were coming up was more of a full orbed. Yes. I was kind of a, kind yeah, of Calvinism. totally. I was kind of oblivious to that. Not cause I didn't like it or I just wasn't really as aware of it, you know? Um, but, uh, I was kind of immersed in this, um, more of a, some would say like Dutch reformed stream and had a bit of the Puritans in there as well. And so there was a high, heavy emphasis on, all of life, as Alfred Jesus would say, kind of the universal scope of God's plan for uh, restoring creation and the cosmos, you know, and um, and the role of the affections and the heart and actually like the desires being captivated by the beauty and goodness and glory of God. Uh, and so from there, man, I love reading broadly, so I love reading... And my wife would always joke we were on vacation at the beach and have the big theological tome with me. You know, she's like, dude, that is not vacation reading. I'm like, it is for me, you know, so uh, loved. On my, on my honeymoon, I brought John Stott's commentary on Romans and my <laughs> wife was making fun of me for the same thing. So we have that in common. And that is why you guys are the Kobe and Shaq of yes. our theology team. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I'd say maybe, you know, two of the biggest influences, I, I really got influenced as well by the early church fathers early on in that season and just reading what the early church church thought and how they navigated and engaged. This was while you were in seminary. Mm -hmm. And where did you yeah. go to seminary? Uh, Multnomah Seminary, Portland, Oregon. Okay. Uh, so Multnomah got really fascinated with like, you know, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Tertullian, and just the, the church fathers as a whole, the Cappadocians. And then uh, as well, Augustine, I'd say Augustine, I know some people love him, some people hate him. I love him. He's, he, he's been a huge formative influence on me theologically in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and and throughout this time, you're beginning to pastor. 
You're serving in a pastoral role in Oregon. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So serving in a pastoral role there. And, uh, yeah. And I'd say, you know, um, those were some of the major early foundation kind of formational influences theologically. And then from that launching pad, you know, really I have loved reading broadly. So I love reading Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, kind of across the board theologically, but uh, definitely very rooted in the Reformed tradition. What's interesting to me, even that a lot of that theological journey begins with eyes of mission. Yes. Right. You're going like, I'm hearing this from my friends. I'm hearing this from my professors. I'm hearing this from the people around me. I want to have answers for them. I want to be a blessing to them. And that seems, you know, a significant part of your ongoing, your writing ministry as well as your pastoral ministry now as you're one of the co-lead pastors at Redemption Tempe. So, uh, which I want to talk about your books in a moment. But Seth, let's hear your, uh, kind of what's some of that that story for you with theological development. So I grew up in a relatively seeker-sensitive evangelical church and went through Sunday school. My parents are both Bible people. My mom was more of a Bible study person. My dad was more of a biblical wisdom person. It all felt very external to me. I remember uh, growing up and when in fifth grade, a bunch of my non-Christian friends went out and saw Passion of the Christ, and I wasn't allowed to go see it because it was violent or something like that. Mm. And then they were all telling me about the movie they saw, and I was ta- talking to them about the movie they saw, like I knew the events. And they like, and they were like, "How did you know?" I thought you didn't see the movie. I'm like, "Well, I know <laughs> the events." And so it was kind of like the first time I realized because I was the only Christian in all the classes I had growing up, basically. Like until wow. seventh grade, I had a, I mean, and by only Christian, I mean only person who attended church regularly and. And yeah. had Christian parents. That's what I mean by Christian in elementary school. Whether you were born again or not is... I was not, almost certainly not... To be... Yeah, yeah of, of the Lord in terms of my own... But in terms of my worldview and my upbringing. So I was pretty used to people not agreeing with me and stuff. And then throughout high school in particular, theology in the Bible was mostly a way of arguing with my LDS and Roman Catholic friends. You know, I was right and they were wrong. And this was the instrument to assert that reality. And it felt very external. It was hardly affecting my my heart, mind, soul in any way. I mean, mm-hmm. it was affecting my mind, but certainly not my heart, soul, anything internal. And, you know, just seeing people rebel and who weren't Christians and walk away from the faith, like it moved me zero. It wasn't until uh, my buddy Derek had to have open heart surgery. And I remember throwing all my cliches at him and them kind of bouncing off and not doing anything mm-hmm. when we were uh, sophomores in high school that I feel like the kind of cold, calculated, cliche Christianity started to erode. And then it was right after my senior of high school, my buddy Ethan got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I started to see all these people throw their, their faith cliches at him and try to be helpful. And, and I remember thinking like, there has to be better explanations out there. And so it wasn't until my freshman year of college, I was a philosophy major and a psychology major. And I saw, I was reading all this kind of secular approach to life and death. And I started reading a ton of theology and I began by reading Desiring God by John Piper. And I remember reading a ton of that and resonating with it and kind of going all the way into this hyper-individualistic position where I was thinking about, you know, the the role of the church is to convert people, period. But then it wasn't until, like, so my mom's whole side of the family is Jewish, and we grew up observing the high holidays, Mm. um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, all these various things, Hanukkah. And so this consciousness of, um, like, systemic brokenness and the evil people oppressing the powerless people— um, through the book of Exodus, all the way up through uh, the exiles, was very much a part of my my worldview. And even getting into middle school, I remember we had this like whole uh, semester we spent on the Holocaust in middle 
middle school English and everybody else having their mind blown by this. How could such good people do such evil things? And me thinking like, of course people would do this. People are terrible. Mm. And so that was, so it was kind of like this combination of this Jewish imaginative consciousness from being reading the reading, not the prophets, but reading the Old Testament narrative of, of the oppressed people who are freed by Yahweh. And then reading this kind of John Piper, God is sovereign. We are sinners in the hands of uh, a God who is angry and merciful at the same time that I also got pushed into that kind of continental reform tradition. I remember reading Kuiper and Bavink and realizing, feeling like these people are giving language to the tension that I felt like Mm. this kind of Jesus saves sinners from going to hell period um, connected with me because it made sense of like the, the severe depravity that I felt in my own life. And it made sense of the depravity I saw elsewhere. But the fact that it ended in not going to hell and it, it didn't really have anything to do with creation or new creation. It didn't have a cosmic scope and didn't really speak to society and society's problems. And even the fact that that tradition is so complicit in, in subjugating peoples across the world. And so there's like this kind of tension I felt. It wasn't until really reading Bob Inc and Kuiper that I really was thinking this tradition really holds tightly two things that I really care about. One is this God cares about oppressed people and God cares about sin in the oppressed people. So it's not just mm. like there are victims and there are non-victims, but it's that there are sinners with different degrees of power and they affect society with different degrees based on their power, not based on their sinfulness. And so that tradition, that reform tradition ended up feeling more like home to me. Mm. And, it w- but it was really motivated out of the sufferings of my friends, Derek and Ethan and Derek's still alive, but Ethan eventually passed away that I started reading a ton. I, I joke with people that I didn't read a whole book until I was a freshman in college. Wow. And, and so a lot of the homeschool moms I talked to are really encouraged by that. Um, <laughs> cause like, well, our kids got a great head start then because <laughs> I spark noted everything. I skated by and everything. But it wasn't until I found like I was personally invested in, I need to know this cause it's going to help people yeah. who are grasping in the dark at answers. And I could be someone who helps them find answers. And just the, the phrase that one of my pastors told me, about theological education is if you can, you should, because not everyone can, mm. but somebody has to, and the church needs theologians. And so I went to Phoenix Seminary and was exposed to a variety of good things. Um, but even through my um, post-MDiv stuff, going to Covenant Seminary, they're they're pretty healthily, broadly reformed uh, place, and I ended up being pushed to read a, a lot of person of Jesus-centric, God is sovereign-centric, Jesus cares about the earth, Centric theology. Yeah, so you have a master an MDiv from Phoenix Seminary, and then just got your doctorate. I did, yeah. Doctor of Ministry from Covenant. Um, give us just a snapshot quickly of uh, what did what did your dissertation end up about? So dissertation. So there's a first century heresy called Docetism, which comes from the Greek word dikeo, which taught that Jesus didn't have a body; he was just kind of like a a mirage or uh, a ghost, uh, because the the Greeks thought that bodies were so awful. How could God have a body? And so it was a heresy called docetism. And so I called it, uh, I, I was exploring a term called neodocetism, which I made up or what theologians call a neologism. It's a made up word <laughs> to talk about made up words. You made up neodocetism here. I've been hearing you talk about it. I didn't know you made that word up. Someone else might've used it, but I couldn't find anywhere oh. that anyone else used it. Well, so I called you it, heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so it was like, so it's a Christological or Christological docetism. This is an anthropological docetism. So a human idea, this idea that our bodies are just an appearance. They're not really us. Mm. And talking about how 
especially digital technology is making it possible for like Rene Descartes idea. I think therefore I am to actually be actualized that we all have these constructed identities digitally and getting back into the LGBTQ conversation, this idea that your body's not you, your body's just the appearance of you, who you are is really your, your soul or your mind or your thoughts or your cognition. And so that's related to the first century heresy of docetism because it's just saying we're not really the flesh. We're just the appearance of the flesh. Well, and that, that's something that we'll get into as we talk about, especially the conversation related to gender identity. If you want to hear more about Seth's uh, dissertation and some of the things he unpacked there, there's some really interesting stuff there, especially related to Gen Z and parenting and just overall kind of understanding of, of a theology of technology and stuff like that. Uh, so Seth's one of the pastors at Redemption Gateway with me, and we have a podcast we do called King and Culture, and we've had some episodes on there where we kind of talk through that stuff. It's a interesting little deep dive. So... So you've been kind of really seeping in a lot of the, the issues that relate to a conversation on gender identity. And then Butler, um, you have been too, but let's kind of start with, uh, you've just completed a book related to, or just completed writing it. I don't know what stage we are in the publishing at this point. Um, but uh, tell us about, uh, maybe tell us about your previous books and then tell us about the one that you just finished writing. Great, definitely. Yeah. So first two books, first one was called The Skeletons of God's Closet, and that was trying to help folks who wrestled with some of the tough topics of the Christian faith, particularly uh, hell, judgment, and holy war, uh, violence in the Old Testament and all. Um, and, yeah, that was a lot of fun to write. Uh, the second one was called The Pursuing God, and that one was really about grace, how it's not so much about us going out to find God, it's God coming after us, and tried to deal with some tough topics there too, like sacrifice, wrath, atonement, uh, some of those kind of themes. Um, and that was third one. So, so hold okay, on real wait. fast. So you also have a podcast, the All of Life uh, podcast, I think is what it's called, at Redemption Tempe. Yes, the Redemption Tempe. We have you a and podcast some other... as well. Yeah, totally. So we tackle some some of these topics and things like And you like guys that. have been talking through uh, one of those books lately. Yeah, we did a three-week series this summer on The Pursuing God, and okay. so that was a lot of fun. We got to dive into uh, basically a deep dive on some of the themes from the book. And there were a couple of us kind of digesting and processing what do these things mean for us as the church today. Uh, and then we also did um, recently one on violence in the Old Testament. And uh, yeah, so one of the Pursuing God uh, episodes was on the whole question you might hear today. Is the cross divine child abuse? What's going on between the Father and the Son? How do the Trinity and the cross relate? Uh, so we did one on that. And then uh, a few weeks ago, we did one too on, yeah, violence in the Old Testament. Mm. Holy war is God commanding genocide. What's going on with Israel and the Canaanites in particular. Yeah, so, I mean, same, like we were saying before, I mean, b both of you guys, you really, your theology is formed in the context of mission, mm. in the context of how do I have better answers for people, whether it's a suffering friend or whether it's people who are going, hey, you know, I read the Bible and I just see genocide and I just see all these terrible things that seem like God is commanding and what do we do with that? So, man, I, I just, I love that it's not kind of a theology from an ivory tower, you know, theology, oh. how many angels could dance on the head of a pen, you know, kind of random, obscure Infinity stuff. angels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's one of the... That's not part of our uh, conviction yeah. statement. But. Well, that's one of the things I love, too. A lot of the feedback I got on The Skeletons in God's Closet, the first book, was how people say, man, one of the things they really appreciated was it wasn't just like abstract concepts, but it was applying it to some of the toughest realities in our world today. Um, for me, a lot of that was birthed out of working internationally in Rwanda and Cambodia, two of the homes to two of the worst genocides in the 20th century, and going, how does this stuff relate? How does our need for God's judgment, how does the reality of the power of hell at work in the world, how do uh, these themes, you know, our hope that God is coming to deal with and set things right, how, how does yeah. that show up and bring hope in the trenches of our world today? 
Yeah. So then talk about the one that you just finished writing. Definitely. So the newest one, uh, the title is Sex Icon, Restoring the Beauty of the Christian Sexual Ethic. And the big idea there is that sex can either be an icon or an idol, like either a window that we look through that gives us a glimpse into the glory and goodness of God or a mirror that reflects back our own selfishness, brokenness, and destruction. And so the idea behind icons, historically, the idea was icons were meant not so much to be looked at as to be looked through as mm. a window into greater realities. And so the key idea of the book What would is be that, some examples of kind of historic icons? Yes, there's one. Uh, one I use in the book, actually, is Christ Pantocrator. It's one of the kind of oldest known icons. It's a very famous one uh, where it's a picture of Jesus' face, only if you look at it, his face looks really funky because the two halves of his face don't match. Like one side looks really stern and uh you know at first you're just kind of going dude his face looks weird but as you start to pay attention it's like one side he's got like the pursed lip and the stern eyebrow and the whatever else mm. and he's holding the book of the gospels almost like a book of judgment in one hand and the other side looks really calm and soft and peaceful and serene and he's holding his hands out in a sign of uh the, the sign of peace you know like peace be with you and the, um, not like the hippie piece, right? <laughs> like, uh, but it, you're kind of looking at it first going, if you're looking at it, you're going, dude, that's a weird picture of Jesus. Like, did Jesus just, was he not able to hold his pose or, you know, <laughs> what, what's going on? Right. Uh, this but it's like a bad Mona Lisa, bad Mona Lisa. Uh, but the reality is it's not like to be looked at as like a photographic replica, like a driver's license of Jesus, that yeah, kind of thing, sure. uh, but rather to be looked through mm. as a window into this greater reality that Christ holds perfectly together, both love and justice in his person that he holds perfectly together, uh, mercy and judgment. Like Jesus is the, uh, perfection of those things held together in his character and in who he is so this book's arguing that sex similarly can be an icon yes you can look through to see some greater reality exactly i mean you may say <laughs> so you know male and female uh, paired together at first might look like two awkwardly halves you know th those two don't seem to go together you know like the two halves of jesus face sort of right they like, uh, may seem awkward at first but the reality is that god has designed uh, sexual union as a window into these greater realities and so in the book, we look at um, four main ones, at uh, uh, sex's window into the structure of creation, uh, the nature of salvation, the abundance of the kingdom, and the identity of God. And so, uh, yeah, it takes a whole book to dig into each of those. But, yeah, the big picture. One, one of the most well-known ones that probably would be the nature of salvation, Christ in the church, right? So sure. Ephesians 5, Paul says... Um, you know, this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh... And uh, so he's quoting there Genesis 2, this famous verse about marriage and sexual union and all that. Uh, but then he goes on in the next sentence to say, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Mm. And what Paul is saying is that this is about that, that sex and marriage and all are a window into the nature of Christ and the church. And this reality of the nature of our salvation is at its core, its union with Christ. So, yeah. Well, I was thinking about you this summer because uh, Molly and I at one point in June, we're uh, walking along the beach in uh, San Diego. And um, I was thinking about how I've heard you talk about how some of the most beautiful parts just in creation are when these complementary opposites or complementary others come together. Yes. And you use the, the example of, you know, when the, when the sea meets the land, you know, it's always this just wonderfully staggering place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So the structure of creation, uh, kind of start there looking at Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, we see this picture of uh, these three complementary pairs that structure our world. And so you have heaven and earth, 
land and sea and night and day. And uh, in Genesis one, you know, you kind of then you have male and female come as the kind of the climax or the final complementary pair. Uh, but one of the things I find fascinating um, is that the most beautiful places and moments in creation are when those two become one. Like uh, when the land meets the sea, you know, kind of going to discussion of how like the, the shoreline, the coast, one of the most beautiful places. Oh yeah. You walk by there and there's just always someone just staring at it. Totally. And it's the most expensive real estate in the world is on the coast. Um, And I think that's just the grandest example where you have oceans and tectonic, you know, continents coming together, yeah. but even on smaller scales, like cabins are built on lakes and, uh, the grand Canyon we live by here, you know, is rock carved out by water or waterfalls mm. or water carved out by rock. And so, mm. you know, the water is beautiful on its own deserts, beautiful on its own, but there's something majestic and beautiful when the two come together. And it's also a place where life is generated, yeah. like where water and land come together are places of abundance and where life can flourish and, and thrive. Similarly, like, you know, with night and day, they come together at sunrise and sunset. Yeah. And these are the most beautiful moments. Sure. Just like an explosion of euphoria in the sky. You wow. Know, like how, yeah. how beautiful this is. Um, or then heaven and earth, the mountaintop has historically been sacred space, a place where heaven and earth connect. Huh. And that's this window into this greater reality of Jesus says God's kingdom. You know, we pray as his followers, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prays for the union of heaven and earth. He teaches us to long for the coming together of heaven and earth. And uh, and so all that to say that then when male and female appear at the end, uh, they are a window into this greater reality of the structure of hmm. creation, these two that are made with and for one another. And when they come together in union, that's a space where uh, a unique kind of beauty hmm. comes forth sure. and where life can be generated. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, once that's published, maybe we'll have you back on to kind Sweet. of uh, talk about that more. Oh, and um, one yeah. side note is the book was also going to get into gender, specifically, but uh, it was getting so long that with my agent, <laughs> we decided to break it into two books. So the sex one is done. That should be okay. out in 2022. Uh, and the gender one is getting uh, worked on right so now. So you're working on that as we speak. Yes, totally. Great. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Well, let's talk. Um, I, I want to get into the conversation on gender identity. Um, but first, let's just talk a little bit about the Redemption Theology team. So um, I don't know exactly how this came about. I think Tyler Johnson, who's been kind of providing the overall leadership for Redemption, at some point came to us and said, hey, we ought to really have a team to more think through these things. And so um, you guys really are, I, I joked, kind of the Kobe and Shaq of the team. I mean, there's other people that contribute to it, other elders or pastors from different places, but you guys really kind of have carried the ball on it. Um, what's that collaboration like i think it began when we wanted to do uh, a facelift of our membership packet and so there is there's been a variety of things that we felt like in our older membership packet that were overly individualistic or didn't really represent or feel like us i came in i've been on staff almost five years now and what i know about tyler what i know about you luke what i know about redemption church i remember reading our membership packet and thinking i know i'm new here but this doesn't feel like what i've experienced here that was the original one yeah the original one yeah and so when are we going to rewrite? And remember you kind of saying like, well, someone's got to take a crack at it. And so there's kind of a, everyone thinks someone else should do a thing. So <laughs> give it a rip. And so a lot of it's been uh, some function of I write a draft or Josh writes a draft. Then we critique each other's draft or, and then we send the draft out to some other realm of pastors and then they critique those drafts and then on and on and on. So it ends up being like the th- theology team is the, the first draft, second draft writing team. Whereas, <laughs> sure. whereas really like the approval of the, and the, 
the dissemination of the theologizing process is something that all the pastors participate in. And even then it goes beyond pastors to um, a variety of men and women who are not necessarily elders or pastors who are part of the kind of like invested central core of redemption church. And so I very much see the theology team, not as like the ones dictating, but the ones saying, Hey, we need to have a statement on, let's write a draft. Let's get it out. Let's collaborate. And so like this body section, generated any draft, Josh wrote a first draft that was like five or six pages long. <laughs> yes, I chopped it long. down. Apparently writing long things is yes. his deal. Yeah. You know? I chopped it down to a page, <laughs> added a couple sentences. We added a footnote based on like pronouns we sent it out. People asked for clarification. Some of it's just helpful because language is so contextual sure. that even like we're talking about sex and what we're talking about is X, 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 Y, biological sex. Like we're talking about the, the components. We're not talking about sex acts. Yeah. At, you know, but so, yeah. so it's just important to like clarify the language that when, Hey, when you read this in Tucson, what do you hear? And when you read this in Flagstaff, what do you hear? And when you read this in Gilbert, what do you hear? Just so you're trying to pick language that accurately represents what we're thinking in believing that's not misrepresenting what's going on. And so that's such a communal process. And so theology, this is one of the reasons why I think theology really belongs to the church and the academy can give tools, but it can't really do theology. The church does theology. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Echo, you add anything to that? I don't agree. Yeah, no, he nailed it. <laughs> Great. Well, let's talk about this particular uh, article that's really kind of uh, previewing and getting into um, a couple things that are happening for us this fall. So this fall, we're doing a, a sermon series, uh, kind of resuming a sermon series. We started it in March of 2020, and then that got put on pause. And so we're kind of restarting it, kind of resuming it, but it's called Countercultural Convictions. And we're looking at a number of different issues that uh, we have a conviction about as Redemption Church that runs counter to either the broader culture or even in some cases to certain aspects of Christian culture. And so, uh, you know, we're looking at things like uh, like sex related to gender identity and male female sort of stuff. We're looking at um, gender. I guess that's what we're looking at: gender, sex. We're looking at issues related to the vulnerable, um, how God saves people, uh, generosity, different things like that. Um, but one of the things that just seems like we get a lot of, of growing questions about as pastors and as leaders. And I think a lot of people just sort of wonder, where are we on this, uh, relates to gender identity in particular. And so uh, we have one of the articles that's part of our membership packet. It's Article 21. It's called The Body, Sex, and Gender Identity. And uh, you can find uh, a copy of our doctrine and convictions and all that stuff if you just go to redemptionaz.com. Uh, you can click through our convictions and you'll find uh, th this document that we're going to talk through. Um, but really, this is just trying to articulate where are we at. Um, not related specifically to the roles of men and women in the church or complementarity or versus egalitarianism or like who can do what in the church or in the home. That's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about how did God make us male and female? What are the implications of that? And so, um, yeah, so I think what we got to do is just go through this uh, document and I'm going to just read chunks of it and, and walk through it and kind of just ask you guys really to elaborate on it, explain um, that sort of thing. And I think this will be just a helpful resource as people want to kind of understand uh, where uh, where we stand on some of these issues. Mm -hmm. So here's our summary statement for this article is uh, we say this, the body is sacred, including it, its sexed nature and a fundamental aspect of our identity. So the body is sacred, including its sex nature and a fundamental aspect of our identity. So that's kind of the summary. Mm. Um, and I think as we work through the detail, that summary will make, make it more sense. So uh, in the detail, we say this, our bodies are sacred. We are not just persons who have bodies. We are bodies. 
Body and soul share an integral union, mutually integral to our personhood. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. So that's a striking uh, sentence to me. We're not just persons who have bodies. We are bodies. Um, Josh, t- talk about that. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it can be helpful to define terms when we're talking about this. So we talk about sex, as Seth mentioned, what we're talking about is not uh, the sexual union of male and female, but our sex identity as male and female. And before we get to gender, which we're talking about in a minute, uh, one of the things we're really trying to do in this part is to emphasize the sacredness of our bodies and how they're not just kind of an appendage. I think there's kind of a tendency today to think of the body as extraneous to the person, like your core is kind of internal, immaterial within you, and your body is just sort of a tool you have on the outside to use as you will. And I think it'd be helpful to go back to Genesis 1 here is really grounding in terms of, well, what do we even mean by male and female? What do we even mean by sex? And three things that I think we see in Genesis 1 are that male and female are uh, biological categories, they're procreative categories, and they're iconic categories. So uh, by biological going, in Genesis 1, um, God is making bodies, right? He's making uh, the creatures of the earth. He's making the sun, moon, and stars. Genesis 1 has not yet moved to kind of the psychological, what we might call or like internal life of the soul or the, mm. the, the person, the material. It's really talking about the concrete nature of our physical world, you yeah. know? And uh, so when God makes male and female, it says uh, the climax of Genesis 1, 26, 27, God made male and female humanity in his own image, male and female, he created them. Uh, that the picture there is that God is making male and female bodies. So male and female are a biological category that are a part of the created order, God's good created world. A second thing we see is that male and female are procreative categories in that um, just after, so it says God made man in his image, in the image of God he made him, male and female he made them, and just after what you might call that split into male and female, comes God's blessing that says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And so there's a strong sense in the text that the, um, the splitting you might say of, of mankind into male and female is what facilitates the blessing of procreation to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to basically have sex and make babies. And like, this is how yeah. it gets done. Right. So, and I think that's powerful that when male and female are procreative categories often gets lost in a lot of the cultural discussion today. Mm-hmm. You know, like you think about, is that cause it just seems so obvious or well, I, yeah, I would say, yeah, I, yeah I, I'd suggest, I think part of the reason that it gets lost today is because culturally it's just, we have, un, we really undervalue procreation as being related to sex. We've kind of mm-hmm. disconnected sex from, the generation of children, it's kind of an optional add-on choice versus something inherent to... Yeah, anybody who says that, well, sex is for procreation, it's kind of like, oh, yawn, roll your eyes. I think there's another aspect of that, too, that has to do with economic idolatry. I think so much of the uh, Marxist language that is to do with the access to the means of production, that when you're talking about participating in economic life and adding value monetarily to a society in the production of goods and services. What you're saying is the subdue and have dominion aspect of the creational mandate, which is to um, produce and create culture and leverage things. But there's that second aspect of fruitful and multiply. A lot of the language of even just that uh, the, the different waves of feminism have tried to talk about how we have to turn women into men economically because procreation is actually a violation of economic productivity. And so there's this desire to divorce the um, procreative aspects from the sexual aspects because procreation is viewed at is ultimately viewed as an inhibition to economic participation Mm. that so like even 
in modern situations, I remember when my wife got pregnant last time and the only way that we would get paid maternity leave is if she filed for short-term disability, which blows my mind because pregnancy and childbirth is like whatever the opposite of a disability is. Yeah. But economically speaking, it is absolutely a disability. You are less productive to society because you're having a child. And so it's not just we want to be able to enjoy sexuality, but it's also like economic idolatry that divorces sex mm. from procreation. That's mm. interesting. And what I, what I'd want to you know say just kind of as a foundation, like what are male and female, you think about like a farmer and he's going out and he's looking at his pigs or his sheep or whatever. And when he says, Oh, it's a male pig or a female pig or a male sheep, female sheep. He's not talking about their internal sense of self, right? <laughs> sure. That pig thinks it's a male, but you know, he's talking about their procreative function. Like, yeah. you know, like, and, and so, um, and that's not insignificant. It's not everything, but it's something, you know? Sure. And so I think similarly in the biblical narrative, Genesis one, we see we're talking about bodies. We're talking about uh, procreative reality. Um, male and female facilitate that uh, procreative function. And then the third thing, uh, I'd say yeah, you said that, biological procreative. What's the third? And yeah. the third one would be iconic. And what okay. I mean by that is kind of the image of God language that all this is wrapped up in this poem in Genesis one twenty six. That's the climax of Genesis one where it says in the image of God, he created man, male and female, he created them. And so, um, so the emphasis here is on God creating humanity in his image. Mm. And it's saying there's something about our identity as male and female that's a window into something of God that's to, made to reflect something unique about who God is and the reality of our world. Yeah, that makes us distinct from the pigs and the sheep. Totally, totally. Now, obviously, you have male and female animals, too, and stuff, right? So um, it's not, uh, there, there's some uniqueness and nuance there, but there is, I believe Genesis 1 is saying there's something about God creating mankind in his image, male and female, uh, that it's related. Our sex identity as male and female is related to our image-bearing function or capacity of, of representing and reflecting God well into creation. And so all those three are very, very significant. And, and yeah. none of them really have anything to do with, uh, at this point yet, kind of the internal sense of self, the more psychological realities that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment that are often used to discount yeah. male and female identity. So... Yeah, yeah, they, ha female, yeah right? they, they have to do with realities of, of bodies. And so we said in there, we are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Seth, you mentioned earlier how, you know, I mean, this idea of that the body's bad is not, or, or that the body's not the most significant thing, that's not really a new thing. Yeah. That's been around a long time. Yeah, it goes all the way back to Plato. And this is where some of like the queer theorists like Judith Butler have ground to stand on is she talks about how in Platonic thought, some of our oldest Western philosophy you have this idea of women as just being unfinished men so they're defined mm -hmm. by the absence of a penis and so it's it's literally like they just didn't get all their stuff and so they're so they're less than and so that, that was how the how certain greek philosophers thought about it. yeah it's how a lot of greek philosophers thought about it and so um from plato aristotle socrates all these people saw biological distinctions as evidence of male superiority rather than complementarity or mm. or image of god and so one of the things judith butler who's the founder of queer theory who I think is the founder of queer theory, one of the things that she talks about is how because of this, these biological categories have to be thrown off because they come with so much baggage and we have to erase them and get back to them. But part of what I'm saying is, yes, we in the West, and in particular in the church, are complicit in part of this anti-body um, dismissal of the value of real bodies. And so we have to go back further than Plato, back to Moses, back to Adam, and see the way that God creates 
um, humans and he gives them bodies and that they together subdue and have dominion and are fruitful and multiplying. And so there's an inherent dignity and value. And so in our Western tradition, both economically and ontologically in terms of being in status, there has been a subjugation of women to men on the grounds of some biological or economic productivity. And this even goes back to um, maybe in a different lane, but a similar way, because I grew up in the church being taught, like, so the only text remember that I remember being talked about as it relates to bodies is 2 Corinthians 5.1, which talks about our bodies as a tent. And it was talked about, I think, as a means of trying to comfort students who are in puberty. They're like, <laughs> hey, your body's just a tent. It's temporary. Like, it's just temporary. Don't worry about your body. It's temporary. Yeah. And it was like the message was your body doesn't matter. What really matters is your soul. But that's not biblical. That's platonic. That is um, Cartesian. That is actually giving foundation for various forms of queer theory that say your body's not substantial to your identity, your psychology substantial to your identity. And so it was interesting seeing that tension where being told your body doesn't matter, it's just a tent, but then going into conversation about sexual ethics, and it was like, well, men and women go together, and men are men and women are women. I'm like, wait a minute. All of a sudden, our bodies matter when you start talking about ethics, but when you're talking yeah. about salvation, our bodies don't matter, and experiencing some of that tension. And so that's one of the reasons why, not just as a way of combating the so-called liberals, but also going, the church has had this kind of otherworldly disembodied view of the persons and their salvation as well. And so are there some other like ways that, you know, just we as well-meaning Christians might things we might do or things we might say that actually reveal a kind of platonic dualism, you know, the body's bad, the soul is good um, that we may not think, I mean, we not consciously think that or you know say that but like we actually are doing or saying things that kind of reveal yeah there's more of that in there than we think yeah I think I remember when I even started doing CrossFit and exercising I had multiple people at the church pull me aside and say like why are you spending all this time investing in your physical health when what really matters is spiritual health what really matters is emotional health what really matters is evangelism and discipleship and you're taking all this time and so that kind of devaluation or even like the kind of gluttony as being like a sin you can't push on or these things like that of going, Hey, there's this whole like realm of the body as temple that basically means you shouldn't smoke or drink, but you can eat McDonald's and drink Coke all day long, you know? So, so I think there's a lot of just regard for spiritual well-being as divorced from physical well-being that Mm -hmm. reinforces some of that. Yeah. And I think that a big part of it has to do with the way we talk about salvation is salvation. You, you know, getting the hell off of earth you know, got to get out of this hellish place, got to get out of here, or does salvation have to do with Jesus making all things new, including you? And there's this reality that when we die, we're present with the Lord, and so there is a, a paradise that's promised immediately after the grave, but the the real grounding of future hope is the resurrection of Jesus' body and the future resurrection of our bodies. Yeah. And so the our current body in its present state is a tent in that we are in between the times of the resurrection and the second resurrection. And so the first coming and the second coming of the first Christ event and the second Christ event. And so there is an in-between state that we're existing in simultaneously in the realm of sin and death and in the kingdom of God. And so there is a sense in which we're in a temporary state right now. However, it is this body that's going to be resurrected. It's our bodies made new, not us getting new bodies that will shape the way that we think about life and death. And that that continuity between the new creation, the current creation is pretty key when it comes to Jesus not bailing on his creation, starting a new one, but Jesus redeeming his existing creation 
And so it's not a start over project, but it's a make it new project. Yeah. And I wonder as well with just influences shaping this today, you know, uh, online church, (laughs) Uh, I know some today need to at this stage, but uh, the reality of how much our life bigger picture is mediated online, you know? And so you think of social media where do you have us on zoom a lot last year, you know, and and on zoom a lot, you can actually change your background to like not actually be the place you're physically in, you know, but I'm like in front of the Taj Mahal or I don't know out (laughs) in outer space or something, you know, Um, or how much you can use avatars. You kind of pick your profile and and that kind of thing. Um, But often in digitally mediated spaces, I'm, I'm not saying that's, horrible or you know we shouldn't use them or anything like that but there is a reality of like it's training and forming and equipping us to think of uh, what really matters is what I project and that's sort of determined by my my soul my psychology yeah. my internal life and uh, the body even my physical environment is actually um, irrelevant to the communion of persons you might say that I can meet with encounter and interact and all with other people and my body is sort of irrelevant to that encounter in a lot of ways. Yeah. That it hasn't been historical. That's one of the reasons why I've been trying to say a ton is you can't go to church online. You can watch people go to church online, but you're not doing it. Like physical presence in the room presence matters that you are where your body is. You are not what you're tuned into by means of the internet. Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time on just these first few sentences, but I, I think it's because it, it's just such an important foundation for the conversation is if if we come at this from kind of a like, well, our bodies aren't that big of a deal, they don't say much about God, they don't say much about humanity, then then that leads you in a totally different direction mm. than if you kind of starting with Genesis 1, go, okay, no, this actually really does matter. So let me go to the next part. Uh, it says, the body's sex nature as male or female is not only significant but bound up with our creation in the image of God. So we talked about that a moment ago. Jesus reaffirms the diversity of the sexes as ethically significant and grounded in the structure of creation. Jesus also recognizes the exception of those born eunuchs, which is analogous, if not equivalent, to intersex conditions, while simultaneously affirming the male and female binary as normative for creation. Christ's incarnation and resurrection affirm the body's foundational significance. If, uh, if you're having a hard time following, you might want to pull up that <laughs> convictions uh, thing on redemptionaz.com. Um, but so, so we talked about uh, the body sex nature bound up in creation in Genesis one, but then here we're going to Jesus mm-hmm. and saying, okay, but Jesus also reaffirms the diversity of the sexes as ethically significant. So where does he do that? How does that work? Totally. Well, big picture, this last sentence, I think is a good place to start. Christ's incarnation, resurrection, affirm the body's foundational significance. And this really speaks to what uh, Seth was saying earlier, just about the the end game is not whisking souls out of creation. You know, God's end game actually is Christ's incarnation. We see an affirmation of the goodness of the body, that God himself takes on flesh in Christ and becomes human, unites his... And never takes it off. Yeah, never takes it off. His stuff with the fabric of our existence. In his, in his resurrection, he's not like, oh, that was fun, now I'm back to, you know, like, yeah. no, we believe in the resurrection ascension, like Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father with his resurrected body, you know, and, it, and sure. it's the body, it's the foretaste of the new creation. It's the inauguration and beginning of what's to come, the kind of resurrection of all humanity and the restoration of God's creation. And so that is foundational and just going, dude, the body again is um, significant and central to Mm. God's redemptive purposes. Um, But then within here, we talk about Jesus reaffirming the diversity of the sexes and all. Uh, Matthew 19 is a key passage here. And so Matthew 19 in context, Jesus is being asked about divorce, kind of what's your take on divorce. Uh, And so that's kind of the primary response uh, what he's talking about. But what Jesus does is interesting. 
is he goes back not to the law of Moses, but actually goes back even earlier and quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he kind of confronts the religious scribes of the day and says, have you not read? And I love that. It's like he's telling the you know religious teachers, don't you guys read your Bibles? <laughs> and what he's doing, he's going back and rooting it in Genesis 1. He quotes Genesis 1, um, you know, that... Uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God creating man his image, male and female, he created them. Um, and then for this reason, the two will become one flesh. And what we see Jesus doing here is he's reaffirming the goodness of the structure of creation. He's reaffirming God created the male and female. He's reaffirming this has significance for kind of the um, yeah foundational realities within creation for, for humanity that God's made. Uh, but what's interesting is you go... A little bit later in the passage, and his disciples are basically going, Jesus, you've raised this really high bar for marriage. Yeah, they say, well, gosh, if this is how it works, who, who should even get married? <laughs> totally, totally. And Jesus yeah. is essentially like, yeah, you know, like, like Jesus is essentially like, yeah, it's a really high sure. bar. Um, and so then he goes on to talk about singleness. And, you know, Jesus says, um, you know, the, there are those who um, were born eunuchs. There are those who are made eunuchs. Um and, and basically they're those who will live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And what he's talking about there, a eunuch was uh, someone who, uh, when we talked about those who were made eunuchs, he's talking about someone who was castrated. Often they were people who um, would say maybe they would care for the king's harem of wives or something to that effect, right? Like they, and they, they were someone that the king could trust. Well, they're not going to sleep with my wives because they're, they're castrated, right? And so uh, eunuchs often played um, roles as servants and really trusted could be elite functions, but to um, high dignitaries, people with a lot of influence mm -hmm. position. Uh, but what's interesting here is Jesus also talks about those who are born eunuchs. And what this probably means is they, you know, were born with some uh, physical condition, uh, what we many, like we might consider an intersex condition now where it's like, okay, they're not going to uh, be able to sleep with, um, the person they're working for is wise because they don't have yeah. the equipment, so to speak. Right? Yeah. So, so, so we say in here, it's, it's analogous, if not equivalent. So we're not, yes. we're not trying to say that intersex is what Jesus necessarily has in mind. Totally. But that and there's that, some connection. And so no, the big, part, part well, of it, really yeah. quick here, I'll, yeah. just to wrap up that thought, yeah. I think the big picture here would just be to say, Jesus is saying God made the male and female. And there are those whose experience doesn't match fullness of that right like like there 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 are those who seem like an exception to the norm of what male and female mean as biological and procreative realities yeah part of the challenge too is we're in such a medical scientific world that we have all these infinity labels for everything and everything's spliced out into labels whereas eunuch would have been a catch-all term yeah. that especially in that first century would have been an approximate term kind of a bucket similar like you have the word pornea which stands for everything that's not the norm sexually, right? So pornea is everything that's not male and female intercourse in marriage. Everything that's not that is pornea. It's more of a bucket term. Eunuch would have been a similar bucket term. It So the varieties of intersex conditions or developmental issues, either from birth or injuries post-birth that equal you're unable to consummate a marriage, eunuch. There's yeah, but Jesus is not talking about a psychological reality here. He's talking about a physical reality. And yes. same with intersex conditions today. So it could be helpful to distinguish, you know, intersex conditions are biological conditions where someone's sexed identity as male or female is either uh, unclear or there's been an abnormal abnormality in their physical development. That means that 
um, often would lead to infertility um, or depending on the condition. Now, I, I think we'll talk more about those. Yeah, so, so, and, so the distinction ahead. here too that we want to talk about is the way that gender activists, which I know is a, on a very broad term, they want to say that the exceptions destroy the norms or the exceptions erase the norms, that because there are this 0.1 to 1% of people who don't belong in the norm, we therefore need to throw out the norms. Whereas what Christ is saying is he's upholding the creational norms and he's saying here is the design and here's the structure and here's the creational normal. And so Christians have a view of what is normal and what is abnormal. And, and that Not type, based off of cultural norms, but based off biblical understanding yeah, of that, that what's, creational what's, story. That Jesus is saying what is normal is male and female in creation. There are exceptions to those norms. Those people are humans. They have dignity. They have value. But the, the presence of exceptions does not erase the norms. And so Christians need to be able to uphold the norms and say creation is normed. There is a creational order without necessarily saying 100% of people perfectly inhabit those norms. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, because I think the danger on... It, Seth talked about the danger on the gender activist side, but the danger on the Christian side could be at times because of the culture war kind of thing going on. Be go, well, God made a male and female, no exception, and stop. You know, and well, no, Jesus acknowledges there's a norm, but there are also those whose experience doesn't fit the norm, and that's important. If you're someone with an intersex condition, that could be a real painful sure. reality, and you're welcome, man. You're a part of the. You can be part of the family of God, fully embraced. You know, like yep. and. Uh, your story is is meaningful and valuable, and I think sometimes what I've seen is often people with intersex conditions could feel caught in the culture war, you know, and going, dude, I'm not even trying to plant a flag in this. I'm just I have this sure. experience, and um, and it can be a lot harder to carry that experience alone uh, in isolation versus being known as a part of the people of God, the family of God, yeah. that being a part of the story. And I think it's important here that Jesus affirms that reality for people. I think it's also important to talk about these exceptions in the way that we understand uh, that Christians do uphold a standard and we do say there is a normal and that to be not within the normal is a symptom of the fall that, that all developmental disabilities or delays or problems, whether any measure of psychological or physical malady, these things are uh, part of living in our Genesis three reality. And so whenever there's a, a departure from like genetic ideal, it is a malady. It's not. And so we're not saying that the person suffering from that is responsible for it or it's no. their fault or they're being punished. We're just saying like, it's the reality of living in a world that has sin everywhere. Yeah. And it, it's maybe analogous to a cancer. It's like, you're not morally responsible because you got cancer, but you are now morally responsible with how you carry that cancer. And so it's, it's not like we can walk around at people who don't fit the, like it's not normal to get cancer. You're not supposed to get cancer, but because of Genesis three, we get cancer. And it's similar with um, intersex gender dysphoric conditions is it's that this is part of life post fall, that it's just the fabric of creation all the way down to the DNA yeah. is, is broken. Mm. And so we don't want to uphold it as saying it's normal or it's typical, but we do want to be able to hold it and recognize that there's varieties of sufferings that all people have to carry and bury and that that may not be healed and it may not be fixed and it may not be solved until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Yeah. Now, and with that, one thing I would want to supplement that with is to say that there are, uh, because of the redemptive power of God's presence in the world, there are also 
believe great gifts that God has to bring to his church through people with intersex conditions, with gender dysphoria. Um, you know, talking about physical, uh, other physical conditions, I've got a degenerative eye condition that has led to blindness in one eye. And there was a fear this last year, many know that I was going blind. Um, but even that process and some of the stuff I had to go through, like I've seen God work redemptively through it in ways that have been really powerful in my own formation, the life of the mm. church. And I think sometimes there's a danger we can say, um, let's say if you have an intersex system, there could be the danger of going, it, it's only a bad thing as a result of the fall. Whereas there's also a reality that um, I believe there, there's a reality of what God can do in our own mm. formation through that process yeah. and the gifts he can bring to his people through those things that, um, that I, I think could be really powerful as well. Yeah. yeah so, so, so far we're saying bodies are sacred because of how God made it in Genesis one, the creational uh, reality. Jesus reaffirms that. And then uh, we go to the next paragraph. Third paragraph says this followers of Jesus ought to identify in accordance with our bodily sex, not present ourselves in ways that will intentionally introduce confusion as to our identity as male or female and not seek to alter our body's sex through hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery. So here we get a little bit to the, so what is to go, okay, if if this is the creational reality that Jesus, that uh, God made and that Jesus reaffirms, then we ought to identify in accordance with that sex. Um, So is this basically saying like, if you're a male, if you're a biological male, you shouldn't try to present yourself as a female or vice versa. Yeah, this is pushing back on that platonic idea that the body is a prison. Part of what we're saying is the body is fundamentally not a prison. Even the body, when it's not the way it's all the way supposed to be, it's not a prison. It's a blessing. And that to be embodied is to be in the image of God, to have fellowship with the incarnate Christ. And whether your 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 eyes, your legs, your genitals aren't working, bodies are fundamentally blessings, even though there may be curses in the midst of them. And this is kind of where we're crossing the line into some of the gender conversation rather than the sex conversation. And then even in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about wearing men's and women's clothing. Women wear women's clothing, men wear men's clothing. And that this idea of gendered clothing goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And the, the, the part of the message there is that to be a female is a blessing, to be a male is a blessing. We want to be okay with the fact that God has blessed us with this sex slash gender or that sex slash gender and recognizing that confusing people is not helping them. Yeah. And that actually like deceit is a form of lying, which is sinfulness. Yeah. It feels like a key phrase in there was, uh, that we will not present ourselves in ways that will intentionally introduce confusion as to our identity as male or female. My four year old son, you know, sometimes we'll be watching, uh, you know, I love music and we'll watch a, you know, some band on YouTube or just whoever anywhere. And he'll go, Hey, that guy has earrings. Do got do men do boys wear earrings? And I say to him, Well, sometimes. Like we're not going like, well, you know, normally earrings are things that women wear, and so men can never wear earrings. But if a man was wearing earrings in order to try to present himself as female, we'd go, Okay, now that becomes more problematic. Yeah. And and we'd be really foolish not to admit, and this is the thing, like God's not stupid. God understands that the way that ways that men and women present themselves varies across cultures. So this is where the parts of gender that is culturally derived is just totally true. Like I was watching TV the other day and I saw this male who had braids in his hair and makeup on and long hair and wearing the skirt and it was William Wallace in Braveheart. 
you know, like in <laughs> nobody's going to look at William Wallace and Braveheart and be like, that guy needs to stop confusing us about his bodily sex. So like there's, right. there's just 100% aspects of that. So when people say gender is a social construct, there's an aspect of that, which is true that the way we present gender does vary between cultures. But what you see in Deuteronomy is God saying the fact that it's culturally located does not mean that it's just bogus and needs to be all thrown out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I see there's three things in this paragraph that we're particularly talking about. One is identity. The second one is clothing or presentation. And the third is like uh, hormone therapy and surgery and all like altering the body. So the first one, identity, we're really talking about, uh, you know, say like w- with your pronouns and how you identify yourself, you know, that as followers of Jesus, we believe that, yeah, we're, we should not seek to identify ourselves. If I'm a male, I don't refer to myself as a female or I don't change my pronouns, those kind of things. Um, but then when we talk about, uh, and we'll talk more about the pronoun, we'll t- issue talk more about that in totally, a little bit, in yeah. a little bit. And um, we talk about clothing, uh, presentation, you know, as, as Seth mentioned, that's, uh, more, that's going to vary across cultures, what those expectations are, but recognizing and respecting that we are embedded within cultures, you know, and we want to, um, yeah, live, live, live accordingly. And there is a lot there. There's probably room for discernment. We're talking about intention, but we're not intentionally seeking to present ourselves as the opposite sex, biological sex. And then the third area there um, has to do with uh, hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery. You know, and there uh, we're really talking about, you know, if I'm a follower of Jesus, um, there, we'll, we'll talk more about gender dysphoria in a moment, that there are some real extreme conditions and there is some conversation within different circles around what's appropriate, what's not. Uh, but we do believe that... Uh, as male and female, we are not to try and alter our bodies to uh, to transition from male to female or yeah. vice versa and attempt to do that. Yeah, one thing that I don't think we uh, really address in here specifically, but I'd be curious, kind of your pastoral instinct and theological instinct is, uh, what about for folks that have already mm. gone there, right? Yes. They've already had the sex hormone, uh, the, the hormone therapy, they've had the reassignment surgery, um, they're maybe living in a transgendered identity totally. and they come to faith or they're, and they, you know, experience conviction of the Holy spirit and go, wow, this, this isn't in line with my bodily created sex. What, what would we say there? Yeah. I, I tend to look at that a lot. Like, uh, many missionaries, uh, when in encountering like polygamous cultures, you know, I think of it as kind of an analogy or similar where, uh, it's not like, okay, you came to Jesus get rid of all your wives, you know, like, like there's a realization of like, there's an embedded cultural practice that it's actually could do more damage or destruction to just try and overnight, like overhaul that, you know? And so often the posture with many missionaries is recognizing, okay, as people come to Jesus, there's a long-term call and trajectory for what transformation will look like, but not, um, an overnight expectation, or even in some situations they may find themselves, okay, live faithfully within the place you're in when, when Christ found you, you know? So I think similarly for people who have already had, uh, uh, particularly sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy, some of the challenges can be a, it can be extremely expensive to reverse. I mean, we're talking about a hundred thousand dollars or up, you know, like, uh, so really expensive. It can be also extremely draining emotionally, psychologically, the, what, what it does to the body to have to go back to that. And so, um, now there have been stories I've heard people I, whose voices I've heard where they, um, you know, encounter Jesus and maybe it's a year or two years, three years into their journey, they go, actually, I do want to reverse course and stories where, you know, friends who are Christian family said, okay, we're going to take you in. We're going to care for you. 
their church actually helped cover some of the financial cost of, of the thing. And we're going to care for you and give you a room in our home for a year as you're going through this process and all. And, uh, but just recognize that's a really high bar. And I think it, for those who may want that, I think it would be powerful as the church to wrap around them and support them through that. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I think we should focus more on someone encountering Jesus, yeah. being discipled and growing in Christ and then letting them way with discernment yeah. the decision they well, want to and make to be clear here again uh, flexibility yeah in this in this uh, conviction article we're not trying to say here's exactly how that should play out exactly. there's probably a great deal of wisdom and medical help and totally. uh, pastoral and psychological and lots of other sorts of uh, factors that would come into play so um here's uh here's the next paragraph we we say this uh, we recognize some of our members are born with an intersex condition biological reality we talked about that a bit and others experience gender dysphoria a psychological reality both of these are real and can be painful if this is you you are loved by god created with dignity value and worth and an invaluable part of god's world and church we want to walk with you love you and serve jesus together as a church family where there are no second class citizens only image bearers who are members of christ's body so we talked a little bit about our desire to come along and, and be a blessing to and a place of comfort and support for folks with an intersex condition. It seems like what we're encountering uh, numerically probably far more is folks experiencing gender dysphoria. Um, and that seems to be on the rise and maybe especially among younger folks, um, but not necessarily limited to that. So this is really just trying to express our heart for folks dealing with that that real and painful reality. Um, Seth, I think there's probably some Christians of a more conservative or a more kind of fundamentalist stripe that go, you know, it's all just made up and this gender dysphoria, that's not really a thing. Um, what would you say is the difference between gender dysphoria and taking on a transgender identity? So gender dysphoria, so just the word dysphoria means like dissonance or pain, psychological pain. And it's just this internal feeling of I've, don't totally love my physical body. If anything, I probably prefer the other body, especially when it onsets in the early developmental years. There's a sense of incongruence between how I feel I am versus what I look like I am. And it's a, it's not totally dissimilar from the pains of puberty. It's just much more acute and located in a sense of disconnection from what's changing in my body, especially through pubescence is not the way I want it to be. A lot of people suppress those things and they come out later on in life. But it, a lot of it, when you talk to folks who have gender dysphoria, a lot of it comes from this real disconnect they feel from gender stereotypes and the way they don't fit them. Especially when you talk about little kids, like eight, nine, ten year olds who have like a have gender dysphoria. A lot of it is they don't live in line. They don't fit the gender stereotypes. And so a lot of like the way that Christians in an unhealthy conservative, like an unhealthy conservatism want to say like no blues of boys color, which is not a Bible verse, you know. Um, and then you have a girl who likes blue and it's like, oh, well maybe, you right. know, and, and so that w when we kind of buy into these rigid stereotypes are actually creating dissonant experiences. And especially in a cultural moment where people feel so pressured to self-define and self-direct and self-determine that part of the way that you, um, are taught to individuate from your parents is to come up with a set of labels for yourself mm. and whether it is, uh, pick your gender, you know, pick your school. So the, the choice anxiety that students face, especially the next generation faces is really crippling. And 
this like the especially you have like this kind of thing describing like the rapid onset gender dysphoria where you have a subset a group of kids all at once come out as non-binary or or trans or as having gender dysphoria and you see this like grasping at a sense of self in people who are have not yet found a sense of real stable grace-based identity in Christ and they're looking for stuff and so when I talk to folks with gender dysphoria I mostly see sufferers who are going who am I and how am I and how can I have a place to stand in this world and grasping at labels for it and hoping to try to find hope and I think that so much of our population just is plagued with a general dysphoria of Mm -hmm. anxiety and depression they're just there's just malady upon malady and trying to find explanations for why they're suffering and why they're feeling incongruent with their bodies and why it's difficult and why they don't fit in society. And every new generation comes up with a new set of labels for that. And that's part of what's happening here. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to say that because I think gender dysphoria and intersex conditions have been in our population for forever, but I think a lot of the rapid uptick in it has a lot of related to youthful angst. And I don't want to say every person in, who is sure. experiencing gender dysphoria, it's related to youthful angst. A lot of, non-youthful people experience gender dysphoria in an enduring long way. But a lot of the, the dramatic uptick we see in adolescence in particular is this pressure to self-define that it part of the way that you belong now is by having a condition that makes you, when you say it out loud, makes people think you're authentic, whether it's, mm-hmm. Oh, I have PTSD. Oh, I have ADHD. Oh, oh I have gender dysphoria or I'm non-binary. And so the pressure our culture puts in oppre- and oppresses people with, is is traumatic and i think even back to like the 1940s when people were about the same depressed and anxious they are now um so like my one of my great grandmothers had a lobotomy which left her not the same Hmm. but it's kind of a similar deal it's like hey you feel terrible here's a solution to you feeling terrible and you have medical interventionists with a ton of hubris saying like "I'll, i'll i can intervene and make you feel better and there's a reason we don't do lobotomies anymore it's because a lot of this like chopping up of well-functioning organs in order to feel better, but that doesn't eliminate or minimize people's real suffering and real pain and real dissonance they experience. Yeah. I think it's easy. Day life. It's easy for people who just feel like I've had zero gender dysphoria. Like I've only ever felt like my biological sex to be real dismissive of, of that dynamic in other people. And I think what this paragraph's getting at is to go, no, like there, we think that's a real thing. We yeah. think it, there needs to be compassion. We think there needs to be understanding. Um, I remember listening to some podcast episodes by uh, Preston Sprinkle has a podcast called Theology in the Raw, where he and I'm not endorsing everything about that podcast necessarily, but uh, where he is talking with a lot of people dealing with this and you listen to it and you're just brought to tears as you as you listen to these experiences of confusion and suffering and uh, loneliness and feeling like, man, I just don't know where I fit here. And um, and so we want to have a, the heart of compassion in that. Definitely. One of the things I find helpful is just to recognize that the term transgender that gets used a lot today is really a broad umbrella term. And there's a lot of different uh, experiences, things that come underneath that. And uh, this is not exhaustive, but there's three kind of categories or things I, I find helpful to kind of look at things through within that. Uh, when I think of gender dysphoria, I'm uh, particularly thinking of a really extreme dissonance, like histor- it's a psychological condition it's in what's called the dsm-5 like the american psychiatric association you know for this extreme dissonance and feeling of incongruence that's that's when you listen to people's stories who experience this it can be extremely debilitating and 
ongoing and long-term and just, man, my heart just goes out. And I believe that, so I I like to think of this category as the suffering. And I believe that Jesus brings compassion for the suffering, for those who are suffering from a real condition of gender dysphoria that we as the body of Christ want to wrap around as church family and just go, yeah, we're with you. We want to know what your experience is like. We want to walk with you. We want to support you. We want to love you in that. Um, but then there's a second category that I, you know, think Seth was speaking to, um, which is what I, I'd call more the, the confused and, uh, some might not like they use the language confused about, you know, but I think today where he's talking about, there is this broad uptick where sometimes the language of gender dysphoria can still get used for that, but it feels like it's more, uh, it's often people self-diagnosing or self and it feels a bit like the concept creep where if, Hey, mm-hmm. if I can use that language, it can validate this experience. And increasingly what I think we see with a lot of the rapid rise in people identifying particularly among younger generations today is Sessa, there's often a sense of like a stereotype of what it means to be a real man or a woman and so because i don't meet that stereotype or because sometimes i fluctuate between them because you know like my i must not be truly male or female that's going to fluctuate depending on you know and there i believe jesus brings clarity for the confused and going mm-hmm. like, you don't have to meet a stereotype. Yeah. Well, actually female, the next female, paragraph you know? is going to talk about that very thing. Totally. Totally. And uh, then the third category I think of it is what I call more the revolutionary. Right. And this is more uh, the, the Twitterati, the activist, like the, you know, again, activist is a very broad category, but some of the, I'm still in the term Twitterati. <laughs> but kind of the <laughs> that act- is officially in my vocabulary, Twitterati. <laughs> uh, but kind of the, you know, we the learned act- two new words, neo-docetism and Twitterati. <laughs> but kind of the activist mindset that says, because these ex- either, you know, these, because these experiences exist, we need to deconstruct male and female. Just going, no, that's just not true. You know, and, yeah. and I, at one level, I think there's a confusion of categories here that I just, when we're talking about, male and female, we're talking about biological, procreative, iconic, et cetera. We're talking about bodies. When we talk about um, gender, we're talking about more masculinity and femininity. Yeah. Right? Like, and well, this is what you're going to focus there. on in your, in your kind of equipping talk on our inside redemption live event. Totally. And we're going to, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about that more on the upcoming event. Uh, but in the short version, kind of like you said with lobotomies, I do think it's significant when, you know, one analogy might be, uh, with anorexia, you know, so we're talking about a psychological condition. No one doubts that there's an extreme distress for someone who's experiencing anorexia. And as the church, we would want to wrap around and support and walk with and be with and love and serve, you know, those, those who experience anorexia. But on the same hand, we would recognize, hey, the, the core issue, though, is not with the body. It's psychological, you know, and so we wouldn't want to tell the person struggling with anorexia, like, yes, you're too fat let me help you more you are you know sure. you would not right um we, yeah we we would we, we would not let the psychology trump the biology yeah we would not try and alter the body to yeah the psychology and i think there's something here going if the body is sacred if it is given by god if it's not just a tool to be manipulated by us but it's actually mm. a gift to be received and inhabiting that may be a painful thing that you need to walk with because of that condition and yet we want to walk with folks and uphold the sacredness and dignity of the body. Jumping on that analogy too, going back to the discipleship question, when someone's converted, you, know, you would not withhold the waters of baptism from a converted anorexic on the condition that they gain weight. But there'd this, be this understanding of welcome to Christ over time, you'll become a healthier Christian, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Right? And so just trying to recognize that it's a really unhealthy conservatism that says so- solve the like fix the ripple effects of past sin problems before you get sure. welcomed into the church with open arms. 
Like that's really bad. And so, especially considering like the next generation of converts we're going to see, the vast majority of whom are going to have some type of gender dysphoria, LGBTQ percentage, like Gen Zers is like up to 39% of folks identify some type of thing. And so recognizing that this is a messy reality we have to live into yeah. and it's not going to be a confess and change bang, bang. Like sin is way more systemic and deeply enmeshed into our psychologies mm. that we're not just going to be able to just decide and be different. Well, there, there's an irony to me in the whole thing of on one hand, um, kind of the, the transgender movement sort of goes, your body doesn't matter. On the other hand, you have to make sure you get your body to match your mind. So it seems like it really does matter, right? It's like, well, if it, if it, if the body isn't that important, what matters is just how I feel. Then why all this pressure to have hormone therapy and reassignment surgeries? It's because we kind of know like there, the body does matter. Well, I think a lot of it's related to the increase in technological idolatry as well, that if your body is viewed as just like a piece of piece of clothing that you can alter through technological intervention, like from just so to give them kind of the from their perspective, it's yeah, like that's great. if your heart isn't functioning and you could put a pacemaker on it, why would you not do that? Like we, if we have the technology to make your heart do what you want it to do, why would you not put a pacemaker in your heart? Yeah. And if we have the technology to swap out your penis for a vagina and that's going to make your genitals do what you want to do, why would you not do that? And so there's a, from a naturalistic technological perspective, there's just a big, why would you not do that? Yeah. You know, whereas we would see medical and technological intervention as a reparative, um, not substantive change. Uh, so I think that's one of the temptations is to extend the limits of medical intervention to not just be reparative, but to actually make it interventionist and you're altering well-functioning organs. And so trying to understand like from a naturalistic framework, yeah. if changing out your body parts is like changing out your shirts, why would you not do that? And how dare you tell me like if it, it'd feel like if yeah. someone came to you and was like, don't get a pacemaker because God didn't put a pacemaker there. You're like, you're an idiot. Get away from me. So yeah, that's just the way that. LGBTQ folks hear that language. Yeah. It's like, why would you not do this? Like, well, who cares about any of this? And so, yeah. so just trying to get into the mindset of where they're coming from. All right. Well, we've got a couple more paragraphs then we want to talk about the uh, footnote, which relates to pronouns. So uh, the next paragraph uh, says this, while our conviction is that gender should be understood within rather than in addition to one's biological sex, there's great flexibility in how one expresses their gender. So long as one is not deliberately seeking to identify or present themselves in opposition to their bodily sex. King David was a real man when he wrote poetry and played the harp. Deborah was a real woman when she led Israel into war. Jesus wept over Jerusalem like a mother hen, Matthew twenty three thirty one. The woman of Proverbs 31 buys property, runs a business, has a strong back, and provides for her family. So here we're just kind of getting into some of those gender stereotypes and saying just because it's a cultural gender stereotype doesn't, isn't definitive. Yes. So when we're talking about uh, these gender stereotypes now, we're talking not about our bodies, but we're talking about how uh, you express that kind of within your society, within community, within all that. And what we find in scripture is loads of flexibility. Again, I'm going to talk about this uh, a lot more in the upcoming uh, night that we have coming up on September 21st. But big picture here would be the case I want to make is that um, the Bible resists gender stereotypes, but it affirms gender archetypes, which is basically saying, uh, as we just kind of read in that passage, we see loads of examples where um, uh, 
where you know you've got men doing things that our culture might associate more with femininity or you got women doing things that our culture might associate with masculinity and there's a whole spectrum there and there's flexibility and it's not saying hey if you're a real man you have to act like this and do sure. these things if you're a real woman you got to do these things so I think the bible resists those gender stereotypes now the bible does affirm that there are things that are more generally true of, true of men and there are other things that are more generally true of women and that those are significant so it would be naive to ignore that there are some general differences between men and women in society as a whole um, but it would also be uh, unnecessary to kind of make those this rigid straitjacket saying, well, if you're a real man, you got to act like this. If you're a real woman, you got to act like this. And in some ways, I think some, some of the re the gender movement that we see today feels like it at times it can be a response to what have felt like these culturally binding straitjackets where, Hey, you've said, if I'm really going to be a woman, I've got to act like this and I'm bucking the system and going this way. Or yeah. if you said, if I'm really going to be a man, I've got to act like this. I'm going to, buck this and go this other direction and i think there's a lot of great freedom when we actually realize dude the bible doesn't say you gotta live like a stereotype you know and i've talked to a lot of followers of jesus in our church body and elsewhere who've said man the freedom that came kind of growing up i had this whether it was explicitly told to me or whether i just kind of absorbed it from society but i had this sense that man if i'm, I'm going to grow up and be a real man or woman i've got to act this way and the freedom that came in the gospel of realizing mm. like oh i don't actually have to meet a stereotype and i'm still actually sure truly male or truly female there's a lot of freedom yeah. that comes in that yeah for sure well and so much of what we see not just in terms of gender dysphoria but a broader term of gender of a uh, body dysmorphia people not liking their bodies is related to that those stereotypes is women thinking in order to be a woman i have to look like this and men thinking in order to be a man I have to look like this and women thinking they need to look like victoria's secret models and men Me think i need to look like seth yeah yeah <laughs> I'm not going to respond to that. And, <laughs> and, and teenagers thinking they look like MMA fighters and just how that actually contributes to like people's dissonance with their bodies and how just recognizing that in our hypervisual age, so much of those stereotypes go beyond just gender dysphoria and go further and more broadly into a generally defined body dysmorphia that talking to a lot of therapists I interviewed for my dissertation, they talked about how upwards of 75 to 80% of their people they have in their practice are experiencing some form of body dysmorphia, not necessarily related to their genitals, but related to like, I wish my body was different and that causes me anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. And so the, the antibody, I don't like my body sentiment that's prevalent in our culture is not just located at gender. And so we'd be remiss as Redemption Church if we didn't recognize that body dysmorphia as a whole was a problem, mm -hmm. not just related to sex, but also mm -hmm. related to bodies broadly. So can you speak a little more on that too, related to your, you know, you talked about earlier neo-docetism, your research and all just the impact of technology, because it is so interesting that on the one hand, we have a cultural moment that often says like our bodies don't really matter. They're just kind of appendage. And you know, on the other hand, there's so much emphasis on visual presentation of our bodies. I think of even teenagers growing up and like the, the apps that, you know, can take your face and turn it into like, um, uh, what's the language, but like take your features and make you look like a model, you know, and like the, the, yeah. How, how is yeah, technology? I, so I think of the one that makes me look like an old man. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's I, didn't, I didn't know there was one that could make me look, look better. <laughs> yeah. What's that called? <laughs> Just the hypervisual, hypersexualized culture is what contributes to a lot of this, even gender confusion is especially you see this dramatic uptick in bisexuality or pansexuality in young women and a lot of what even non-Christian gender theorists would say is, well, when you're bombarded with sexualized images of women your whole life, you end up being confused and you go, do I want to be that or do I want that? Similarly, what ends up happening, so you're so it ends up happening, you see these sexually charged images of women your whole life, 
and you see this woman who supposedly turns on men and then you're turned on by the idea of someone being turned on by that image. And so your kind of entire, both your sense of self of, do I want to be that? And do I want that gets, gets convoluted and confused. Mm. And what ends up happening too, is you see sexual, it's like women will see sexualized images of men and see their peers loving and being attracted to those sexualized images of men. And so the question of, do I want that or do I want to be that? And so the, both the bisexuality and the gender confusion is, is, it's like there's gasoline thrown on the fire when you have this hypersexualized social media image situation because you end up kind of wanting to be and wanting things all over the place. And it creates this kind of pansexual, gender dysphoric psychology that when you just scroll through Instagram, is just reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. And you're going, I'm not sure who I want to be or who, uh, how, who I want to be with. And so these issues get pretty convoluted. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why even trying to locate the conversation to just the T in LGBT is difficult because of the, the visualization. Whereas maybe even 30 years ago, it'd be easier to separate how we understand ourselves, which is the gender conversation versus who we want to sleep with, which is like the sexuality conversation that now because of like the hyper image based social media existences, those things kind of get squished together and there's just a, I'm not sure who I want to be with and I'm not sure who I want to be. I just know I like that image and I kind of want to be associated with it. All right. Well, let's go to this last paragraph. It says, uh, we cannot expect those who have rejected Jesus as creator and redeemer to live in line with the creator's order and purpose. Uh, That maybe I'll just pause there and go. We make that mistake a lot probably as Christians is we expect the, the world to live like Christians and they're not Christians. So yes. it shouldn't surprise us. So much of this, we're free to be disappointed, but we're not free to be dis- to be surprised. Yeah. And so if we're surprised, that's our fault. Well, and in one of the verses we have mentioned on this page is first Corinthians five, 12 and 13 for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? And so in our paragraph, we can't expect those who rejected Jesus creator and redeemer to live in line with the creator's order and purpose. God calls us to exercise judgment with one another in our church body, pressing each other toward holiness in the way of Christ and to trust him to deal with those outside. So this is really to say like, Hey, we're not going to be out there policing the world. Uh, We don't, I don't think we want to even be policing each other, but this is a document to go. Here's where we are. And as people decide uh, to covenant with us as members and as partners in ministry in our churches, this is how we're viewing this issue. Definitely. I think one challenge for this conversation for many Christians is this, this feeling like, well, if I hold to, you know, a, a, a Christian ethic in this regard, like I'm going to have to become judgmental towards my neighbors or towards those who are different or my coworkers or uh, that kind of thing. And going and in terms of the, the play out of this, what we're really doing is calling us as the church, as the body of Christ, to faithfulness towards Jesus and uh, in terms of how we live this out, but that um, the the expectation is not that I'm uh, then trying to convince my neighbor to do the same thing when the real issue is we're not sharing Jesus as a foundation at that point. And uh, I think of some folks who have come to me in the past and uh, have said, hey, I'm interested in exploring Jesus, but I want you to know, like, I, I, I'm trans or I, you know, I'm, I'm gay or I'm LGBT, you know, that, that kind of thing. And my response has usually been, well, in, I, I'm great to talk about that conversation if you want. LGBT conversation. We, we actually just talk about Jesus and focus on that and deep dive there, you know, and, yeah. and then down the road, like as that foundation is there, you know, when they find Jesus captivating and they want to live, live life fully for him, then that becomes a foundation on which, okay, well now let's talk about what that means for our sexuality. Let's talk about what it means for our bodies, our gender, those kind of things. But um, I think, Part of this is giving us as Christians the freedom to go. We're not the morality police for yeah. our society and the world, but we do want to call one another towards holiness 
in the way of Christ. Well, and, and the place though, where, where it, the line feels blurry and starts to go, okay, well, I can't just have this kind of belief totally privately uh, really does get into the issue of pronouns uh, in particular. And obviously in relationships and things like that, but a lot of folks, um, you know, that, that I pastor, you know, especially in corporate settings, I'm increasingly getting this question about, can I use people's preferred pronouns? Should I use people's preferred pronouns? Um, some companies are making big pushes that everyone needs to, you know, have and kind of have that be part of the discourse is how everyone identifies. Um, so we have a footnote related to that. And, uh, we have some articles that, uh, essentially what we say on this is, um, we believe it's up to the conscience of the individual. And so we offer a yes perspective, which is an article by Greg Coles, um, and a no perspective, an article by uh, Andrew T. Walker. And, um, we can link to those, um, in the description of this episode. Um, but I guess I'd just be curious, it's just your, so it's, it's up to conscience. We're not trying to say as a, as a church, Hey, here's how members of our church need to treat that issue. Um, how have you personally kind of wrestled through that? And maybe you still are wrestling through that is just for yourselves and for the folks you pastor. Seth. So I think I begin with this idea that Christians are called to seek the public good, that we're called to love our neighbors through truth telling, healthy activism, participating in the means of society. And so I do think that it's good for society to maintain and hold on to biblical gender norms. Like I think that it'd be good for people if they lived under Christ's good, righteous reign and rule. And so that's kind of where we talk about this idea of seeking justice, I think includes upholding biblical norms and that society would be healthier if everyone was a Christian, right? And so trying to recognize that tension and how that plays out politically and not being willing to compromise means in order to justify ends is, I think, a big deal. And I personally feel a ton of tension about this question, and I flip back and forth based on context, partly because I have all these non-Christian friends um, who I really respect and enjoy and have a good time with who say stuff that I think is just totally unbiblical and wrong all the time. Like, I'm a good person. <laughs> like, that's not true. you know. And so going, but I don't feel the need to police that every time they say it, I'm like, actually you're a huge sinner. Stop saying you're a good person, you know, or, or like one of my friends is a, is a woman and she has a wife and, um, and like biblically men get married to women. And so the state might say you're married, but God says you're not married. And so every time she, if every time she's like, and my wife, and I was like, well, actually, right. It's so, so just trying <laughs> that to wouldn't like, be much of a relationship. Yeah. And just trying to recognize that you know, people got to where they are through a long story and it usually takes a long story for them to get to somewhere else and trying to see them with humanity and dignity and not just become linguistic police of the situation is, but then going, okay, am I just being a coward and saying, you know, go along to get along? And, and am I just kind of going with the flow and not trying to ruffle? Cause this, Jesus flipped tables and flustered a lot of people sure. and told a lot of people, you're not who you think you are. And it really bummed them out in a big way. And so on the other side of things, I go, I don't want to be complicit in affirming lies. If other people want to say what's not true, I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to say what's not true. And so I go back and forth and it's really depending on my context. I'm going, what's actually most loving to this person? Cause sometimes what's most loving to that person is for me to speak their language and incarnate in their presence and recognize this as a long situation. And other times what's most loving to that person is for me to be a bit of a stick in the mud and fluster them and say, Hey, I actually don't agree with that even if it means possibly compromising some form of pseudo intimacy that I've had with them. And so I, I tend to have to pray a lot and seek wisdom a lot based on context. When it comes to the church, it's a different discussion internally. 
right? Because sure. now it's like we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're both committed to living under the headship of Jesus. I'm not going to allow you to continue to, or I'm not going to participate in you rejecting the headship of Jesus. And so, so, m- missional, so my, missionally, it's a huge wisdom question, and I feel tons of tension about it, and it's it's really difficult. So if my company comes to me and says, hey, uh, at this next meeting, you know, when we all go around and introduce ourselves, you know, we'd like everyone to also include your pronouns. Yeah, that, what would so I, that what, one, what should I do with that? That one feels easier for me because my preferred pronouns are my biblical pronouns. <laughs> you know, so I don't feel tension being like, hey, I'm Seth, he, him. So I don't, I wouldn't feel tension about that. I know some people would. And I've, and that's one of the things where conscience comes in is I think that there has to be high regard for conscience. Because some people would think saying those pronouns is you participating in the system that believes people can have preferred pronouns rather than real pronouns. And even on that language, one of the things that's difficult is, one thing that's really nice is when you use the second person, you, and use the first person, me, we don't have pronouns. So I find keeping the language as personal as possible, you and me. And when I'm talking about he and them or they or her, I end up talking about people anyway. So actually the times in which preferred pronouns come into play are a lot less as long as you keep it second person, which is me kind of avoiding the issue. So I'm curious, Josh, what you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I really resonate with pretty much everything that Seth just said. Um, two categories that I found helpful that those who kind of go back and forth on this, you know, we'll talk about, you have kind of the truth paradigm and the hospitality paradigm. And I think that kind of draws out this tension. So on the truth side, uh, there'd be those, uh, you know, the concern that, well, if I um, use someone's preferred pronouns and it's not related to their biological sex, then I'm lying, right? And God's a truth teller. Jesus deals with reality. He doesn't deal with illusion. And, uh, and so I think there's a, healthy concern here of like, man, am I participating in kind of a, a, an illusion rather than reality? Am I reinforcing someone's self-understanding that uh, is ultimately, if Jesus is true and reality is real, then it's detrimental that if you're not living in accordance with reality, right? And so on this side, there there would be a concern, um, and, and I think a legitimate one, going, man, am I participating in the con- confusion or um, really, in essence, knowingly saying a lie, you know, and using a pronoun for someone that I don't believe actually represents who they really are. On the other side, um, I think also would be the the hospitality side, which would um, often hear one of the key observations is recognizing that there's a flexibility in how language works, right? So if me and Luke, hey, Luke, let's play a game of football, you know, like let's show up and, right. and uh, you know, are we going to kick it or are we going to throw totally. it? Totally. Are we going to kick it or throw it? And right. if I show up in England and I ask, you know, another pastor friend there, they're saying, hey, let's play a game of football. Like, you know, in one side, he's going to come up with helmets and pads and, you know, right. pigskin and another one going to come up with, you know, like shorts and shin the, the ball, you know, <laughs> shin guards, you know, and, uh, and it's not that I'm lying, you know, it's when, when I go to England versus when I'm in the U.S., it's just that words take, can take on a different meaning in their context, and also throughout time, words can change their meaning and nuance and, and all that uh, in history. Loads of words we could talk about that with. Uh, and so the observation here would be going, pronouns today, what are they doing grammatically? They're not referring to your biological sex. They're referring to your self-understanding, right? And so when someone is saying, even though I'm biologically male, I call myself uh, her, you know, um, we may disagree with their desire to do that, you know, like, you know, first place, but what that, when, when I, when I call them her, I'm not actually referring to their body, like their bodily sex. I'm referring to their expressed self-understanding. And so the claim here would be like, uh, the claim here on the hospitality side, would be say, I'm not actually lying. 
you know? Um, but I'm showing hospitality for, even if I disagree with their decision to identify that way, I'm just acknowledging the way that they've chosen to identify. Yeah. Right? And I feel the tension between those. Like Seth, I, I feel like a lot of it has to do with context. And I'd also suggest like, I found like proximity of relationship. So if I'm in the corporate setting and it's like, dude, I just have to use the markers of how they've chosen to identify I, I, my own personal, but you know, I, I feel like I can do that in good conscience. I, you know, when I'm using their pronouns, I'm just, um, using the way they've chosen to identify. Now I, I disagree with us living in a society that thinks we should have, we should choose to identify differently than we are, you know? Sure. Uh, but that's different from the issue of how they've chosen to identify me acknowledging that now in relationships I've had with friends who are not followers of Jesus, they're not Christian and they've changed their pronouns often what I've done is they know where I stand. I'll have a conversation with them and go, Hey, out of respect for you, I'm going to use your, your pronouns, but I, I do want you to know kind of here's where I'm coming from. And yeah. I believe, you know, and, and usually, you know, the, the relationship has been strong enough to change that. And actually this year I had one, uh, friend, someone who had been exploring Jesus at our church this last year and, um, has now started following Jesus, accepted Christ and I said, actually, I'm in the process of wanting to stop doing hormone therapy. Had been doing, had been going towards sex reassignment surgery, pulling back from that, wanting to begin identifying and going back the other direction to identifying with their biological sex. But they made the comment to me, if you had refused to use my pronouns, that probably would have been a deal breaker mm. that would have, I never would have gotten that far yeah. into exploring Jesus here and all. And so I, I feel the tension there mm. on, on, on both sides. And, yeah. and my own grid is like Seth said, if it's within the church, then I believe no. Like, like dude, you're a follower of Jesus. You need yep. to, you know, identify with your bodily sex, especially in redemption. You know, because here, sure. Uh, but and, and that dual standard is biblical. Like mm -hmm. Paul talks about in First Corinthians five. Hey, if someone's claiming the headship of Christ, here's how you treat their sexuality. And if someone's not claiming headship of Christ, here's how you treat their sexuality. Yeah. So that might feel like a dual standard because it literally is a dual standard, but it's a biblical one. So yeah, yeah. just expressing that tension and living in that is, I think, this feels like more of a tension to live in than a problem to solve as, yeah. as it relates to missional engagement with our loved ones. Totally. And yeah, in that second Corinthians 5, Paul says, if I was talking about the world as a whole, you wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> you, you'd have to disassociate from everybody, right? Where he's talking about sexual immorality there. Uh, but he's going, yeah, there's a difference between how we treat one another within the body of Christ when, it, when we were pursuing holiness and our ethics and how we live together as Jesus people and what our expectations are for those outside the body of Christ that we may disagree with, we may think it would be in their best interest to live in accordance with God's reality and way. Um, and yet there's, yeah, the reality of navigating life. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been such an important and, uh, and you know, difficult conversation, honestly, and just because it is wrapped up in that connection of uh, relationships and of pain and of suffering and of misunderstandings. And uh, I, I just so appreciate the work you guys have done um, theologically in general, but particularly on this issue um, to help provide some clarity, help provide some direction. And um, I think the event that we're going to do will be helpful as well, kind of thinking through uh, more equipping uh, related to these things. So uh, really appreciate you guys. And um, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having us.